0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: Chapter 1. of The Layer of the White Worm. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. READ AND RECORDED BY BETSY BUSH. MARQUETTE, MICHIGAN, JANUARY, 2007. THE LAYER OF THE WHITE WORM BY Bram STOKER. DEDICATION. TO MY FRIEND BERTHA NICOLE WITH AFFECTIONATE ESTEEM. CHAPTER I. ADAM SALTON ARRIVES. ADAM SALTON, SAUNTERED INTO THE EMPIRE CLUB, SYDNEY, and found awaiting him a letter from his grand-uncle. He had first heard from the old gentleman less than a year before, when Richard Salton had claimed kinship, stating that he had been unable to write earlier, as he had found it very difficult to trace his grand-nephew's address. Adam was delighted and replied cordially. He had often heard his father speak of the older branch of the family with whom his people had long lost touch. Some interesting correspondence had ensued, Adam eagerly opened the letter, which had only just arrived, and conveyed a cordial invitation to stop with his grand-uncle at Lesser Hill for as long a time as he could spare. Indeed, Richard Salton went on, I am in hopes that you will make your permanent home here. You see, my dear boy, you and I are all that remain of our race, and it is but fitting that you should succeed me when the time comes." In this year of grace, 1860, I am close on eighty years of age, and though we have been a long-lived race, the span of life cannot be prolonged beyond reasonable bounds. I am prepared to like you, and to make your home with me as happy as you could wish. So do come at once on receipt of this, and find the welcome I am waiting to give you. I send, in case such may make matters easy for you, a banker's draft for two hundred pounds, come soon so that we may both of us enjoy many happy days together if you are able to give me the pleasure of seeing you send me as soon as you can a letter telling me when to expect you then when you arrive at plymouth or southampton or whatever port you are bound for wait on board and i will meet you at the earliest hour possible old mr salton was delighted when adam's reply arrived and sent a groom hot foot to his crony sir nathaniel de salas to inform him that his grand-nephew was due at Southampton on the 12th of June. Mr. Sultan gave instructions to have ready a carriage, early on the important day, to start for Stafford, where he would catch the 11.40 a.m. train. He would stay that night with his grand-nephew, either on the ship, which would be a new experience for him, or, if his guest should prefer it, at a hotel. In either case they would start in the early morning for home. He had given instructions to his bailiff to send the postillion carriage on to Southampton to be ready for their journey home, and to arrange for relays of his own horses to be sent on at once. He intended that his grand-nephew, who had been all his life in Australia, should see something of rural England on the drive. He had plenty of young horses of his own breeding and breaking, and could depend on a journey memorable to the young man. The luggage would be sent on by rail to Stafford, where one of his carts would meet it. Mr. Salton, during the journey to Southampton, often wondered if his grand-nephew was as much sighted as he was at the idea of meeting so near a relation for the first time, and it was with an effort that he controlled himself. The endless railway lines and switches round the Southampton docks fired his anxiety afresh. As the train drew up on the dockside, he was getting his hand-traps together, when the carriage door was wrenched open and the young man jumped in. "'How are you, Uncle? I recognized you from the photo you sent me. I wanted to meet you as soon as I could. But everything is so strange to me that I didn't quite know what to do. However, here I am. I am glad to see you, sir. I have been dreaming of this happiness for thousands of miles. Now I find that the reality beats all the dreaming.' As he spoke, the old man and the young man were heartily wringing each other's hands. The meeting so auspiciously begun proceeded well. Adam, seeing that the old man was interested in the novelty of the ship, suggested that he should stay the night on board, and that he would himself be ready to start at any hour and go anywhere that the other suggested. This affectionate willingness to fall in with his own plans quite won the old man's heart. He warmly accepted the invitation, and at once they became not only on terms of affectionate relationship, but almost like old friends— the heart of the old man, which had been empty for so long, found a new delight. The young man found, on landing in the old country, a welcome and a surrounding in full harmony with all his dreams throughout his wanderings in solitude, and the promise of a fresh and adventurous life. It was not long before the old man accepted him to full relationship by calling him by his Christian name. After a long talk on affairs of interest, they retired to the cabin, which the elder was to share. Richard Salton put his hands affectionately on the boy's shoulders. Though Adam was in his twenty-seventh year, he was a boy, and always would be to his grand-uncle. "'I am so glad to find you as you are, my dear boy, just such a young man as I have always hoped for as a son, in the days when I still had such hopes. However, that is all past. But thank God there is a new life to begin for both of us. To you must be the larger part— but there is still time for some of it to be shared in common. I have waited till we should have seen each other to enter upon the subject, for I thought it better not to tie up your young life to my old one, till we should have sufficient personal knowledge to justify such a venture. Now I can, so far as I am concerned, enter into it freely, since from the moment my eyes rested on you I saw my son, as he shall be, God willing, if he chooses such a course himself.' indeed i do sir with all my heart thank you adam for that the old man's eyes filled and his voice trembled then after a long silence between them he went on when i heard you were coming i made my will it was well that your interests should be protected from that moment on here is the deed keep it adam all i have shall belong to you and if love and good wishes or the memory of them can make life sweeter yours shall be a happy one now my dear boy let us turn in we start early in the morning and have a long drive before us i hope you don't mind driving i was going to have the old travelling carriage in which my grandfather your great granduncle went to court when william the fourth was king it is all right they built well in those days and it has been kept in perfect order but i think i have done better i have sent the carriage to which i travel myself The horses are of my own breeding, and relays of them shall take us all the way. I hope you like horses. They have long been one of my greatest interests in life. I love them, sir, and I am happy to say I have many of my own. My father gave me a horse farm for myself when I was eighteen. I devoted myself to it, and it has gone on. Before I came away, my steward gave me a memorandum that we have in my own place more than a thousand, nearly all good." "'I am glad, my boy. Another link between us.' "'Just fancy what a delight it will be, sir, to see so much of England, and with you. "'Thank you again, my boy. I will tell you all about your future home and its surroundings as we go. "'We shall travel in old-fashioned state, I tell you. "'My grandfather always drove four in hand, and so shall we. "'Oh, thanks, sir, thanks. May I take the ribbon sometimes?' Whenever you choose, Adam, the team is your own. Every horse we use to-day is to be your own. You are too generous, Uncle. Not at all. Only an old man's selfish pleasure. It is not every day that an heir to the old home comes back. And, oh, by the way! No, we had better turn in now. I shall tell you the rest in the morning. End of chapter 1 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two of *The Lair of the White Worm* by Bram Stoker, read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Two: The Caswells of Costa Regis. Mister Salton had all his life been an early riser and necessarily an early waker, but early as he woke on the next morning and although there was an excuse for not prolonging sleep in the constant whirr and rattle of the donkey-engine winches of the great ship, he met the eyes of Adam fixed on him from his berth. His grand-nephew had given him the sofa, occupying the lower berth himself. The old man, despite his great strength and normal activity, was somewhat tired by his long journey of the day before, and the prolonged and exciting interview which followed it. So he was glad to lie still and rest his body, whilst his mind was actively exercising and taking in all he could of his strange surroundings. Adam, too, after the pastoral habit to which he had been bred, woke with the dawn, and was ready to enter on the experiences of the new day whenever it might suit his elder companion. It was little wonder, then, that so soon, as each realized the other's readiness, they simultaneously jumped up and began to dress. The steward had, by previous instructions, early breakfast prepared, and it was not long before they went down the gangway on shore in search of the carriage. They found Mr. Sultan's bailiff looking out for them on the dock, and he brought them at once to where the carriage was waiting in the street. Richard Sultan pointed out with pride to his young companion the suitability of the vehicle for every need of travel. To it were harnessed four useful horses with a postillion to each pair. See, said the old man proudly, how it has all the luxuries of useful travel, silence and isolation as well as speed. There is nothing to obstruct the view of those travelling, and no one to overhear what they may say. I have used that trap for a quarter of a century, and I never saw one more suitable for travel. You shall test it shortly. We are going to drive through the heart of England, and as we go I'll tell you what I was speaking of last night.' Our route is to be by Salisbury, Bath, Bristol, Cheltenham, Worcester, Stafford, and so home. Adam remained silent a few minutes, during which he seemed all eyes, for he perpetually ranged the whole circle of the horizon. "'Has our journey to-day, sir?' he asked. "'Any special relation to what you said last night that you wanted to tell me?' "'Not directly, but indirectly, everything.' "'Won't you tell me now?' I see we can't be overheard. And if anything strikes you as we go along, just run it in. I shall understand. So old Sultan spoke. To begin at the beginning, Adam, that lecture of yours on the Romans in Britain, a report of which you posted to me, set me thinking, in addition to telling me your tastes. I wrote to you at once and asked you to come home, for it struck me that, if you were fond of historical research, as seemed a fact, This was exactly the place for you, in addition to its being home of your own forebears. If you could learn so much of the British Romans so far away in New South Wales, where there cannot be even a tradition of them, what might you not make of the same amount of study on the very spot? Where we are going is in the real heart of the old kingdom of Mercia, where there are traces of all the various nationalities which made up the conglomerate which became Britain. I rather gathered that you had some more definite, more personal reason for my hurrying. After all, history can keep, except in the making. Quite right, my boy. I had a reason, such as you very wisely guessed. I am anxious for you to be here, when a rather important phase of our local history occurred. What is it, if I may ask, sir? Certainly, the principal landowner of our part of the country is on his way home, and there will be a great homecoming— which you may care to see. The fact is, for more than a century, the various owners in the secession here, with the exception of a short time, have lived abroad. How is that, sir, if I may ask? The great house and estate in our part of the world is Castor Regis, the family seat of the Coswell family. The last owner who lived here was Edgar Coswell, grandfather of the man who was coming home, and he was the only one who stayed even a short time. This man's grandfather, also named Edgar, they kept the tradition of the family Christian name, quarrelled with his family and went to live abroad, not keeping up any intercourse, good or bad, with his relatives, although this particular Edgar, as I told you, did visit his family estate. Yet his son was born and lived and died abroad, while his grandson, the latest inheritor, was also born and lived abroad till he was over thirty, his present age. This was the second line of absentees. The great estate of Castro Regis has had no knowledge of its owner for five generations, covering more than a hundred and twenty years. It has been well administered, however, and no tenant or other connected with it has had anything of which to complain. All the same, there has been much natural anxiety to see the new owner, and we are all excited about the advent of his coming. Even I am, though I own my own estate which— though adjacent, is quite apart from Costa Regis. Here we are now, in new ground for you. That is the spire of Salisbury Cathedral, and when we leave that we shall be getting close to the old Roman county, and you will naturally want your eyes. So we shall shortly have to keep our minds on old Mercia. However, you need not be disappointed. My old friend, Sir Nathaniel de Salis, who, like myself, is a freeholder near Costa Regis, his estate doom tower is over the border of derbyshire on the peak is coming to stay with me for the festivities to welcome edgar Coswell. he is just the sort of man you will like he is devoted to history and is president of the mersian archaeological society he knows more of our part of the country with its history and its people than anyone else i expect he will have arrived before us and we three can have a long chat after dinner he is also our local geologist and natural historian so you and he will have many interests in common. Amongst other things, he has a special knowledge of the peak and its caverns, and knows all the old legends of prehistoric times. They spent the night at Cheltingham, and on the following morning resumed their journey to Stafford. Adam's eyes were in constant employment, and it was not till Salton declared that they had now entered on the last stage of their journey that he referred to Sir Nathaniel's coming.' as the dusk was closing down they drove on to lesser hill mr sultan's house it was now too dark to see any details of their surroundings adam could just see that it was on the top of a hill not quite so high as that which was covered by the castle on whose tower flew the flag and which was all ablaze with moving lights manifestly used in the preparations for the festivities on the morrow so adam deferred his curiosity till daylight His grand-uncle was met at the door by a fine old man, who greeted him warmly. "'I came over early, as you wished. I suppose this is your grand-nephew. I am glad to meet you, Mr. Adam Salton. I am Nathaniel de Salis, and your uncle is one of my oldest friends.' Adam, from the moment of their eyes meeting, felt as if they were already friends. The meeting was a new note of welcome to those that had already sounded in his ears." The cordiality with which Sir Nathaniel and Adam met made the imparting of information easy. Sir Nathaniel was a clever man of the world, who had travelled much, and within a certain area studied deeply. He was a brilliant conversationalist, as was to be expected from a successful diplomatist, even under unstimulating conditions. But he had been touched, and to a certain extent fired, by the younger man's evident admiration and willingness to learn from him. Accordingly, the conversation, which began on the most friendly basis, soon warmed to an interest above proof, as the old man spoke of it next day to Richard Salton. He knew already that his old friend wanted his grand nephew to learn all he could of the subject in hand, and so had, during his journey from the Peak, put his thoughts in sequence for narration and explanation. Accordingly, Adam had only to listen and he must learn much that he wanted to know. When dinner was over, and the servants had withdrawn, leaving the three men at their wine, Sir Nathaniel began. "'I gather from your uncle—by the way, I suppose we had better speak of you as uncle and nephew, instead of going into exact relationship. In fact, your uncle is so old and dear a friend that, with your permission, I shall drop formality with you altogether, and speak of you and to you as Adam, as though you were his son. "'I should like—' answered the young man, nothing better. The answer warmed the hearts of both the old men, but, with the usual avoidance of Englishmen of emotional subjects personal to themselves, they instinctively returned to the previous question. Sir Nathaniel took the lead. I understand, Adam, that your uncle has posted you regarding the relationships of the Caswell family. Partly, sir, but I understand that I was to hear minuter details from you, if you would be so good i shall be delighted to tell you anything so far as my knowledge goes well the first caswell in our immediate record is an edgar head of the family and owner of the estate who came into his kingdom just about the time that george the third did he had one son of about twenty-four there was a violent quarrel between the two no one of this generation has any idea of the cause but considering the family characteristics, we may take it for granted that, though it was deep and violent, it was on the surface trivial. The result of the quarrel was that the son left the house without a reconciliation, or without even telling his father where he was going. He never came back again. A few years after he died, without having in the meantime exchanged a word or a letter with his father. He married abroad, and left one son, who seems to have been brought up in ignorance of all belonging to him. The gulf between them appears to have been unbridgeable, for in time this son married and in turn had a son, but neither joy nor sorrow brought the sundered together. Under such conditions no reproachment was to be looked for, and an utter indifference, founded at best on ignorance, took the place of family affection, even on community of interest. It was only due to the watchfulness of the lawyers that the birth of this new heir was ever made known— He actually spent a few months in the ancestral home. After this, the family interest merely rested on heirship of the estate. As no other children have been born to any of the newer generations in the intervening years, all hopes of heritage are now centred in the grandson of this man. Now it will be well for you to bear in mind the prevailing characteristics of this race. These were well preserved and unchanging, one and all they are the same— cold, selfish, dominant, reckless of consequences in pursuit of their own will. It was not that they did not keep faith, though that was a matter which gave them little concern, but that they took care to think beforehand of what they should do in order to gain their own ends. If they should make a mistake, someone else should bear the burden of it. This was so perpetually recurrent that it seemed to be a part of a fixed policy. It was no wonder that whatever changes took place, they were always insured in their own possessions. They were absolutely cold and hard by nature. Not one of them, so far as we have any knowledge, has ever known to be touched by the softer sentiments, to swerve from his purpose, to hold his hand in obedience to the dictates of his heart. The pictures and effigies of them all show their adherence to the early Roman type. Their eyes were full, their hair of raven blackness grew thick and close and curly, Their figures were massive and typical of strength. The thick black hair, growing low down on the neck, told of vast physical strength and endurance, but the most remarkable characteristic is the eyes. Black, piercing, almost unendurable. They seem to contain in themselves a remarkable will-power, which there is no gainsaying. It is a power that is partly racial and partly individual, a power impregnated with some mysterious quality, partly hypnotic, partly mesmeric, which seems to take away from eyes that meet them all power of resistance—nay, all power of wishing to resist. With eyes like those set in that all-commanding face, one would need to be strong indeed to think of resisting the inflexible will that lay behind. You may think, Adam, that all this is imagination on my part, especially as I have never seen any of them. So it is, but imagination based on deep study— I have made use of all I know or can surmise logically regarding this strange race. With such strange compelling qualities, is it any wonder that there is abroad an idea that in the race there is some demonic possession, which tends to a more definite belief that certain individuals have in the past sold themselves to the devil? But I think we had better go to bed now. We have a lot to get through tomorrow and I want you to have your brain clear, and all your susceptibilities fresh. Moreover, I want you to come with me for an early walk, during which we may notice, whilst the matter is fresh in our minds, the peculiar disposition of this place, not merely your grand-uncle's estate, but the lie of the country around it. There are many things on which we may speak, and perhaps find enlightenment. The more we know at the start, the more things which may come into our view will develop themselves." End of chapter two. This recording is in the public domain. Chapter three. Of the Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter three. Diana's Grove. Curiosity took Adam Salton out of bed in the early morning but when he had dressed and gone downstairs he found that early as he was sir nathaniel was ahead of him the old gentleman was quite prepared for a long walk and they started at once sir nathaniel without speaking led the way to the east down the hill when they had descended and risen again they found themselves on the eastern brink of a steep hill it was of lesser height than that of which the castle was situated but it was so placed that it commanded the various hills that crowned the ridge. All along the ridge the rock cropped out, bare and bleak, but broken in rough natural castellation. The form of the ridge was a segment of a circle, with the higher points inland to the west. In the center rose the castle on the highest point of all. Between the various rocky excrescences were groups of trees of various sizes and heights, amongst some of which were what, in the early morning light, looked like ruins. These, whatever they were, were of massive grey stone, probably limestone, rudely cut, if indeed they were not shaped naturally. The fall of the ground was steep all along the ridge, so steep that here and there both trees and rocks and buildings seemed to overhang the plain far below, through which ran many streams. Sir Nathaniel stopped and looked around, as though to lose nothing of the effect. The sun had climbed the eastern sky, and was making all details clear. He pointed with a sweeping gesture, as though calling Adam's attention to the extent of the view. Having done so, he covered the ground more slowly, as though inviting attention to detail. Adam was a willing and attentive pupil, and followed his motions exactly, missing or trying to miss nothing. I HAVE BROUGHT YOU HERE, ADAM, BECAUSE IT SEEMS TO ME THAT THIS IS THE SPOT ON WHICH TO BEGIN OUR INVESTIGATIONS. YOU HAVE NOW IN FRONT OF YOU ALMOST THE WHOLE OF THE ANCIENT KINGDOM OF MERCIA. IN FACT, WE SEE THE WHOLE OF IT EXCEPT THAT FURTHEST PART, WHICH IS COVERED BY THE WELSH MARCHES, AND THOSE PARTS WHICH ARE HIDDEN FROM WHERE WE STAND BY THE HIGH GROUND OF THE IMMEDIATE WEST. WE CAN SEE, THEORETICALLY, THE WHOLE OF THE EASTERN BOUND OF THE KINGDOM, WHICH RAN SOUTH FROM THE HUMBER TO THE WASH. I want you to bear in mind the trend of the ground. For some time, sooner or later, we shall do well to have it in our mind's eye, when we are considering the ancient traditions and superstitions, and are trying to find the rationale of them. Each legend, each superstition which we receive, will help in the understanding and possible elucidation of the others, and as all such have a local basis, we can come closer to the truth, or the probability, by knowing the local conditions as we go along it will help us to bring to our aid such geological truth as we may have between us. For instance, the building materials used in various ages can afford their own lessons to understanding eyes. The very heights and shapes and materials of these hills—nay, even of the wide plain that lies between us and the sea—have in themselves the materials of enlightening books. "'For instance, sir,' said Adam, venturing a question— Well, look at those hills which surround the main one where the site for the castle was wisely chosen, on the highest ground. Take the others. There is something ostensible in each of them, and in all probability something unseen and unproved, but to be imagined also. For instance, continued Adam, Let us take then Seriatum, that to the east, where the trees are lower down, That was once the location of a Roman temple, possibly founded on a pre-existing druidical one. Its name implies the former, and the grove of ancient oaks suggests the latter. Please explain. The old name translated means Diana's Grove. Then the next one, higher than it, was just beyond it. It's called Mercy, in all probability a corruption or familiarization of the word Mercia, with a Roman pun included we learn from early manuscripts that the place was called Villula Misericordiae. It was originally a nunnery, founded by Queen Bertha, but done away with by King Penda, the reactionary to paganism after St. Augustine. Then comes your uncle's place, Lesser Hill. Though it is so close to the castle, it is not connected with it. It is a freehold, and so far as we know, of equal age. It has always belonged to your family." "'Then there only remains the castle.' "'That is all. "'But its history contains the histories of all the others. "'In fact, the whole history of early England.' "'Sir Nathaniel, seeing the expectant look on Adam's face, went on. "'The history of the castle has no beginning, so far as we know. "'The furthest records, or surmises, or inferences, "'simply accepted as existing. "'Some of these—guesses, let us call them— seemed to show that there was some sort of structure there when the Romans came. Therefore it must have been a place of importance in Druid's times, if indeed that was the beginning. Naturally the Romans accepted it, as they did everything of the kind that was or might be useful. The change is shown, or inferred, in the name Castra. It was the highest protected ground, and so naturally came the most important of their camps. A study of the map will show you that it must have been a most important centre. It both protected the advances already made to the north and helped to dominate the sea coast. It sheltered the western marches, beyond which lay savage whales and danger. It provided a means of getting to the Severn, round which lay the great Roman roads then coming into existence, and made possible the great waterway to the heart of England, through the Severn and its tributaries. It brought the East and West together by the swiftest and easiest ways known to those times, and finally it provided means of descent on London and all the expanse of country watered by the Thames. With such a centre already known and organised, we can easily see that each fresh wave of invasion—the Angles, the Saxons, the Danes, and the Normans—found it a desirable possession, and so ensured its upholding. In the earlier centuries it was merely a vantage-ground— But when the victorious Romans brought with them the heavy solid fortifications impregnable to the weapons of the time, its commanding position alone ensured its adequate building and equipment. Then it was that the fortified camps of the Caesars developed into the castle of the king. As we are as yet ignorant of the names of the first kings of Mercia, no historian has been able to guess which of them made it his ultimate defense. And I suppose we shall never know now. In process of time, as the arts of war developed, it increased in size and strength, and although recorded details are lacking, the history is written not merely in the stone of its building, but is inferred in the changes of structure. Then the sweeping changes which followed the Norman conquest wiped out all lesser records than its own. Today we must accept it as one of the earliest castles of the conquest, probably not later than the time of Henry I., Roman and Norman were both wise in their retention of places of approved strength or utility. So it was that these surrounding heights, already established and to a certain extent proved, were retained. Indeed, such characteristics as already pertain to them were preserved, and to-day afford to us lessons regarding things which have themselves long since passed away. So much for the fortified heights, but the hollows too have their own story. But how the time passes— we must hurry home, or your uncle will wonder what has become of us. He started with long steps towards Lesser Hill, and Adam was soon furtively running in order to keep up with him. End of chapter three. This recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER four of The Lair of the White Worm by Brom Stoker. Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. CHAPTER Four: THE LADY ARABELLA MARCH "'Now there is no hurry, but so soon as you are both ready we shall start,' Mr. Salton said, when breakfast had begun. "'I want to take you first to see a remarkable relic of Mercia, and then we'll go to Liverpool through what is called the Great Vale of Cheshire. You may be disappointed, but take care not to prepare your mind—this to Adam—for anything stupendous or heroic.' you would not think the place a vale at all, unless you were told so beforehand, and had confidence in the veracity of the teller. We should get to the landing stage in time to meet the West African, and catch Mr. Caswell as he comes ashore. We want to do him honour, and, besides, it will be more pleasant to have the introductions over before we go to his fete at the castle. The carriage was ready, the same as had been used the previous day, but there were different horses, magnificent animals, and keen for work. Breakfast was soon over, and they shortly took their places. The postilions had their orders, and were quickly on their way at an exhilarating pace. Presently, in obedience to Mr. Sultan's signal, the carriage drew up opposite a great heap of stones by the wayside. Here, Adam, he said, is something that you of all men should not pass by unnoticed. That heap of stones brings us at once to the dawn of the Anglican kingdom. It was begun more than a thousand years ago, in the latter part of the seventh century, in memory of a murder. Walfer, king of Mercia, nephew of Penda, here murdered his two sons for embracing Christianity. As was the custom of the time, each passerby added a stone to the memorial heap. Penda represented heathen reaction after St. Augustine's mission. "'Sir Nathaniel can tell you as much as you want about this, "'and put you, if you wish, on the track of such accurate knowledge as there is.' Whilst they were looking at the heap of stones, they noticed that another carriage had drawn up beside them, and the passenger, there was only one, was regarding them curiously. The carriage was an old heavy-traveling one, with arms blazoned on it gorgeously. The men took off their hats as the occupant, a lady, addressed them. "'How do you do, Sir Nathaniel? How do you do, Mr. Salton? I hope you have not met with any accident. Look at me!' As she spoke, she pointed to where one of the heavy springs was broken across, the broken metal showing bright. Adam spoke up at once. "'Oh, that can soon be put right.' "'Soon. There is no one near who can mend a break like that.' "'I can.' "'You!' She looked incredulously at the dapper young gentleman who spoke. "'You! Why, it's a workman's job!' "'All right. I am a workman, though that is not the only sort of work I do. I am an Australian, and as we have to move about fast, we are all trained in ferriery and such mechanics as come into travel. I am quite at your service.' "'I hardly know how to thank you for your kindness, of which I gladly avail myself. I don't know what else I can do, as I wish to meet Mr. Coswell of Costa Regis, who arrives home from Africa to-day. It is a notable homecoming. All the countryside want to do him honor. She looked at the old men, and quickly made up her mind as to the identity of the stranger. "'You must be Mr. Adam Salton of Lesser Hill. I am Lady Arabella March of Diana's Grove.' As she spoke she turned slightly to Mr. Salton, who took the hint and made a formal introduction." So soon as this was done, Adam took some tools from his uncle's carriage, and at once began work on the broken spring. He was an expert workman, and the breach was soon made good. Adam was gathering the tools which he had been using, which, after the manner of all workmen, had been scattered about, when he noticed that several black snakes had crawled out from the heap of stones and were gathering round him. This naturally occupied his mind, and he was not thinking of anything else when he noticed Lady Arabella, who had opened the door of the carriage, slip from it, with a quick gliding motion. She was already among the snakes when he called out to warn her. But there seemed to be no need of warning. The snakes had turned, and were wriggling back to the mound as quickly as they could. He laughed to himself behind his teeth as he whispered, "'No need to fear there! They seem much more afraid of her than she of them!' All the same he began to beat on the ground with a stick which was lying close to him, with the instinct of one used to such vermin. In an instant he was alone beside the mound with Lady Arabella, who appeared quite unconcerned at the incident. Then he took a long look at her, and her dress alone was sufficient to attract attention. She was clad in some kind of soft white stuff, which clung close to her form, showing to the full every movement of her sinuous figure." She wore a close-fitting cap of some fine fur of dazzling white. Coiled round her white throat was a large necklace of emeralds, whose profusion of colour dazzled when the sun shone on them. Her voice was peculiar, very low and sweet, and so soft that the dominant note was of sibilation. Her hands, too, were peculiar, long, flexible white, with a strange movement as of waving gently to and fro. She appeared quite at ease, and after thinking Adam— said that if any of his uncle's party were going to Liverpool, she would be most happy to join forces. "'Whilst you are staying here, Mr. Salton, you must look on the grounds of Diana's Grove as your own, so that you may come and go just as you do in Lesser Hill. There are some fine views, and not a few natural curiosities, which are sure to interest you, if you are a student of natural history, especially of an earlier kind when the world was younger.' The heartiness with which she spoke, and the warmth of her words, not of her manner, which was cold and distant, made him suspicious. In the meantime, both his uncle and Sir Nathaniel had thanked her for the invitation, of which, however, they said they were unable to avail themselves. Adam had a suspicion that, though she answered regretfully, she was in reality relieved. When he had got into the carriage with the two old men, and they had driven off, he was not surprised when Sir Nathaniel spoke. "'I could not feel that she was glad to be rid of us. "'She can play her game better alone.' "'What is her game?' asked Adam unthinkingly. "'All the country knows it, my boy. "'Caswell is a very rich man. "'Her husband was rich when she married him, or seemed to be. "'When he committed suicide it was found that he had nothing left, "'and the estate was mortgaged up to the hilt. "'Her only hope is in a rich marriage.' I suppose I need not draw my conclusion. You can do that as well as I can. Adam remained silent nearly all the time they were travelling through the alleged vale of Cheshire. He thought much during that journey, and came to several conclusions, though his lips were unmoved. One of these conclusions was that he would be very careful about paying any attention to Lady Arabella. He was himself a rich man—how rich, not even his uncle had the least idea and would have been surprised had he known. The remainder of the journey was uneventful, and upon arrival at Liverpool they went aboard the West African, which was just come to the landing stage. There his uncle introduced himself to Mr. Caswell, and followed this up by introducing Sir Nathaniel, and then Adam. The newcomer received them graciously, and said what a pleasure it was to be coming home after so long an absence of his family from their old seat. Adam was pleased at the warmth of the reception, but he could not avoid a feeling of repugnance at the man's face. He was trying hard to overcome this when a diversion was caused by the arrival of Lady Arabella. The diversion was welcome to all. The two sultans and Sir Nathaniel were shocked at Caswell's face. So hard, so ruthless, so selfish, so dominant! God help any, was the common thought, who is under the domination of such a man! Presently his African servant approached him, and at once their thoughts changed to a larger toleration. Caswell looked indeed a savage, but a cultured savage. In him were traces of the softening civilization of ages, of some of the higher instincts and education of man, no matter how rudimentary these might be. But the face of Ulanga, as his master called him, was unreformed, unsoftened savage, and inherent in it were all the hideous possibilities of a lost, devil-ridden child of the forest and the swamp, the lowest of all created things, that could be regarded as in some form ostensibly human. Lady Arabella and Ulanga arrived almost simultaneously, and Adam was surprised to notice what effect their appearance had on each other. The woman seemed as if she would not, could not, condescend to exhibit any concern or interest in such a creature." On the other hand, the negro's bearing was such as in itself to justify her pride. He treated her not merely as a slave treats his master, but as a worshipper would treat a deity. He knelt before her with his hands outstretched and his forehead in the dust. As long as she remained, he did not move. It was only when she went over to Caswell that he relaxed his attitude of devotion and stood by respectfully. Adam spoke to his own man, Davenport, who was standing by, having arrived with the bailiff of Lesser Hill, who had followed Mr. Sultan in a pony-trap. As he spoke he pointed to an attentive ship-steward, and presently the two men were conversing. "'I think we ought to be moving,' Mr. Sultan said to Adam. "'I have some things to do in Liverpool, and I am sure that both Mr. Caswell and Lady Arabella would like to get under way for Costa Regis.' "'I too, sir, would like to do something,' replied Adam." I want to find out where Ross, the animal merchant, lives. I want to take a small animal home with me, if you don't mind. He is only a little thing, and will be no trouble. Of course not, my boy. What kind of animal is it that you want?' "'A mongoose.' "'A mongoose? What on earth do you want it for?' "'To kill snakes.' "'Good!' The old man remembered the mound of stones. No explanation was needed. When Ross heard what was wanted, he asked— do you want something special or will an ordinary mongoose do well of course i want a good one but i see no need for anything special it is for ordinary use i can let you have a choice of ordinary ones i only ask because i have in stock a very special one which i got lately from nepal he has a record of his own he killed a king cobra that had been seen in the rajah's garden but I don't suppose we have any snakes of the kind in this cold climate. I dare say an ordinary one will do. When Adam got back to the carriage, carefully carrying the box with the mongoose, Sir Nathaniel said, Hello, what have you got there? A mongoose. What for? To kill snakes. Sir Nathaniel laughed. I heard Lady Arabella's invitation to you to come to Diana's Grove. Well, what on earth has that got to do with it? "'Nothing directly that I know of, but we shall see.' Adam waited, and the old man went on. "'Have you by any chance heard the other name which was given long ago to that place?' "'No, sir.' "'It was called—' "'Look here. This subject wants a lot of talking over. Suppose we wait till we are alone and have lots of time before us.' "'All right, sir.' Adam was filled with curiosity, but he thought it better not to hurry matters. All would come in good time.' Then the three men returned home, leaving Mr. Caswell to spend the night in Liverpool. The following day the Lesser Hill party set out for Castra Regis, and for the time Adam thought no more of Diana's Grove, or of what mysteries it had contained, or might still contain. The guests were crowding in, and special places were marked for important people. Adam, seeing so many persons of varied degree, looked round for Lady Arabella, but could not locate her. It was only when he saw the old-fashioned travelling carriage approach, and heard the sound of cheering which went with it, that he realized that Edgar Caswell had arrived. Then, on looking more closely, he saw that Lady Arabella, dressed as he had seen her last, was seated beside him. When the carriage drew up at the great flight of steps, the host jumped down and gave her his hand. It was evident to all that she was the chief guest at the festivities. It was not long before the seats on the dais were filled, while the tenants and guests of lesser importance had occupied all the coins of vantage not reserved. The order of the day had been carefully arranged by a committee. There were some speeches, happily neither many nor long, and then festivities were suspended till the time for feasting arrived. In the interval Caswell walked among his guests, speaking to all in a friendly manner and expressing a general welcome the other guests came down from the dais, and followed his example. So there was unceremonious meeting and greeting between gentle and simple. Adam Sultan naturally followed with his eyes all that went on within their scope, taking note of all who seemed to afford any interest. He was young and a man and a stranger from a far distance. So on all these accounts he naturally took stock rather of the women than of the men, and of these, those who were young and attractive." There were lots of pretty girls among the crowd, and Adam, who was a handsome young man, and well set up, got his full share of admiring glances. These did not concern him much, and he remained unmoved, until there came along a group of three, by their dress and bearing, of the farmer class. One was a sturdy old man, the other two were good-looking girls, one of a little over twenty, the other not quite so old. So soon as Adam's eyes met those of the younger girl, who stood nearest to him, some sort of electricity flashed. That divine spark which begins by recognition and ends in obedience. Men call it love. Both his companions noticed how much Adam was taken by the pretty girl, and spoke of her to him in a way which made his heart warm to them. Did you notice that party that passed? The old man is Michael Watford, one of the tenants of Mr. Caswell. He occupies Mercy Farm, which Sir Nathaniel pointed out to you today. The girls are his granddaughters, the elder, Lilla, being the only child of his elder son, who died when she was less than a year old. His wife died on the same day. She is a good girl, as good as she is pretty. The other is her first cousin, the daughter of Watford's second son. He went for a soldier when he was just over twenty, and was drafted abroad. He was not a good correspondent, though he was a good enough son. A few letters came, and then his father heard from the colonel of his regiment that he had been killed by Descartes in Burma. He heard from the same source that his boy had been married to a Burmese, and that there was a daughter only a year old. Watford had the child brought home, and she grew up beside Lilla. The only thing that they heard of her birth was that her name was Mimi. The two children adored each other, and do to this day. Strange how different they are. Lilla all fair, like the old Saxon stock from which she is sprung, Mimi showing a trace of her mother's race. Lilla is as gentle as a dove, but Mimi's black eyes can glow whenever she is upset. The only thing that upsets her is when anything happens to injure or threaten or annoy Lilla. Then her eyes glow, as do the eyes of a bird when her young are menaced. End of chapter four. This recording is in the public domain. Chapter five of The Lair of the White Worm by Brom Stoker. Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter five. The White Worm. Mr. Salton introduced Adam to Mr. Watford and his granddaughters, and they all moved on together. Of course neighbors in the position of the Watfords knew all about Adam Salton, his relationship, circumstances, and prospects. So it would have been strange indeed if both girls did not dream of possibilities of the future. In agricultural England eligible men of any class are rare. This particular man was specially eligible, for he did not belong to a class in which barriers of caste were strong. So when it began to be noticed that he walked beside Mimi Watford, and seemed to desire her society, all her friends endeavoured to give the promising affair a helping hand. When the gongs sounded for the banquet, he went with her into the tent where her grandfather had seats. Mr. Sultan and Sir Nathaniel noticed that the young man did not come to claim his appointed place at the dais-table, but they understood and made no remark, or, indeed, did not seem to notice his absence." Lady Arabella sat as before at Edgar Caswell's right hand. She was certainly a striking and unusual woman, and to all it seemed fitting from her rank and personal qualities that she should be the chosen partner of the heir on his first appearance. Of course nothing was said openly by those of her own class who were present, but words were not necessary when so much could be expressed by nods and smiles. It seemed to be an accepted thing that at last there was to be a mistress of Castra Regis, and that she was present amongst them. There were not lacking some who, whilst omitting all her charm and beauty, placed her in the second rank, Lilla Watford, being marked as first. There was sufficient divergence of type, as well as of individual beauty, to allow a fair comment. Lady Arabella represented the aristocratic type, and Lilla that of the commonality." When the dusk began to thicken, Mr. Sultan and Sir Nathaniel walked home. The trap had been sent away early in the day, leaving Adam to follow in his own time. He came in earlier than was expected, and seemed upset about something. Neither of the elders made any comment. They all lit cigarettes, and as dinner-time was close at hand, went to their rooms to get ready. Adam had evidently been thinking in the interval— He joined the others in the drawing-room, looking ruffled and impatient, a condition of things seen for the first time. The others, with the patience or the experience of age, trusted to time to unfold and explain things. They had not long to wait. After sitting down and standing up several times, Adam suddenly burst out. "'That fellow seems to think he owns the earth. Can't he let people alone?' He seems to think that he has only to throw his handkerchief to any woman and be her master. This outburst was in itself enlightening. Only thwarted affection in some guise could produce this feeling in an amiable young man. Sir Nathaniel, as an old diplomatist, had a way of understanding, as if by foreknowledge, the true inwardness of feelings, and asked suddenly, but in a matter-of-fact indifferent voice, Was he after Lilla? "'Yes, and the fellow didn't lose any time, either. Almost as soon as they met, he began to butter her up and tell her how beautiful she was. Why, before he left her side, he had asked himself to tea tomorrow at Mercy Farm. Stupid ass! He might see that the girl isn't his sort. I never saw anything like it. It was just like a hawk and a pigeon.' As he spoke, Sir Nathaniel turned and looked at Mr. Salton, a keen look which implied a full understanding. "'Tell us all about it, Adam. "'There are still a few minutes before dinner, "'and we shall all have better appetites "'when we have come to some conclusion on this matter.' "'There's nothing to tell, sir. "'That is the worst of it. "'I am bound to say that there was not a word said "'that a human being could object to. "'He was very civil, and all that was proper, "'just what a landlord might be to a tenant's daughter. "'Yet—yet—well, I don't know how it was, "'but it made my blood boil.' "'How did the hawk and the pigeon come in?' Sir Nathaniel's voice was soft and soothing, nothing of contradiction or overdone curiosity in it, a tone eminently suited to win confidence. "'I can hardly explain. I can only say that he looked like a hawk and she like a dove, and now that I think of it, that is what they each did look like, and do look like in their normal condition.' "'That is so,' came the soft voice of Sir Nathaniel. Adam went on. Perhaps that early Roman look of his set me off, but I wanted to protect her. She seemed in danger. She seems in danger in a way from all you young men. I couldn't help noticing the way that even you looked, as if you wished to absorb her. I hope both you young men will keep your heads cool, put in Mr. Sultan. You know, Adam, it won't do to have any quarrel between you, especially so soon after his homecoming and your arrival here. "'We must think of the feelings and happiness of our neighbours, mustn't we?' "'I hope so, sir. "'I assure you, whatever may happen, or even threaten, "'I shall obey your wishes in this, as in all things.' "'Hush!' whispered Sir Nathaniel, "'who heard the servants in the passage bringing dinner. "'After dinner, over the walnuts and the wine, "'Sir Nathaniel returned to the subject of the local legends. "'It will perhaps be a less dangerous topic for us to discuss than more recent ones.' all right sir said adam heartily i think you may depend on me now with regard to any topic i can even discuss mr caswell indeed i may meet him to-morrow he is going as i said to call at mercy farm at three o'clock but i have an appointment at two i notice said mr Salton, that you do not lose any time the two old men once more looked at each other steadily then lest the mood of his listener should change with delay "'Sir Nathaniel began at once. "'I don't propose to tell you all the legends of Mercia, "'or even to make a selection of them. "'It will be better, I think, for our purpose, "'if we consider a few facts, recorded or unrecorded, "'about this neighbourhood. "'I think we might begin with Diana's Grove. "'It has roots in the different epochs of our history, "'and each has its special crop of legend. "'The Druid and the Roman are too far off for matters of detail.' but it seems to me the saxon and the angles are near enough to yield material for legendary lore we find that this particular place had another name besides diana's grove this was manifestly of roman origin or of grecian accepted as roman the other is more pregnant of adventure and romance than the roman name in mercian tongue it was the lair of the white worm this needs a word of explanation at the beginning in the dawn of the language the word worm had a somewhat different meaning from that in use to it was an adaptation of the anglo-saxon worm meaning a dragon or snake or from the gothic worms a serpent or the icelandic ormer or the german worm we gather that it conveyed originally an idea of size and power not as now in the diminutive of both these meanings Here legendary history helps us. We have the well-known legend of the worm-well of Lambton Castle, and that of the Laidley Worm of Spindleston Hugh, near Bamborough. In both these legends the worm was a monster of vast size and power, a veritable dragon or serpent, such as legend attributes to vast fens or quags, where there was illimitable room for expansion. A glance at a geological map will show that whatever truth there may have been of the actuality of such monsters in the early geologic periods, at least there was plenty of possibility. In England there were originally vast plains, where the plentiful supply of water could gather. The streams were deep and slow, and there were holes of abysmal depth, where any kind and size of antediluvian monster could find a habitat in places which now we can see from our windows were mud-holes a hundred or more feet deep. Who can tell us when the age of the monsters which flourished in slime came to an end? There must have been places and conditions which made for greater longevity, greater size, greater strength than was usual. Such overlappings may have come down even to our earlier centuries— Nay, are there not now creatures of a vastness of bulk, regarded by the generality of men as impossible? Even in our own day there are seen the traces of animals, if not the animals themselves of stupendous size, veritable survivals, from earlier ages, preserved by some special qualities in their habitats. I remember meeting a distinguished man in India, who had the reputation of being a great Shikari, who told me that the greatest temptation he had ever had in his life was to shoot a giant snake, which he had come across in the terrain of Upper India. He was on a tiger-shooting expedition, and as his elephant was crossing a nula, it squealed. He looked down from his howdah, and saw that the elephant had stepped across the body of a snake, which was dragging itself through the jungle. "'So far as I can see,' he said, "'it must have been eighty or one hundred feet in length.' Fully forty or fifty feet was on each side of the track, and though the weight which it dragged had thinned it, it was as thick round as a man's body. I suppose you know that when you are after Tiger, it is a point of honour not to shoot at anything else, as life may depend on it. I could easily have spined this monster, but I felt that I must not, so, with regret, I had to let it go. Just imagine such a monster anywhere in this country— and at once we could get a sort of idea of the worms which possibly did frequent the great morasses which spread round the mouths of many of the great european rivers i haven't the least doubt sir that there may have been such monsters as you have spoken of still existing at a much later period than is generally accepted replied adam also if there were such things that this was the very place for them I have tried to think over the matter since you pointed out the configuration of the ground, but it seems to me that there is a hiatus somewhere. Are there not mechanical difficulties? In what way? Well, our antique monster must have been mighty heavy, and the distances he had to travel were long and the ways difficult. From where we are now, sitting down to the level of the mud-holes is a distance of several hundred feet. I am leaving out of consideration altogether any lateral distance.' Is it possible that there was a way by which a monster could travel up and down, and yet no chance recorder have ever seen him? Of course, we have the legends, but is not some more exact evidence necessary in a scientific investigation? My dear Adam, all you say is perfectly right, and were we starting on such an investigation, we could not do better than follow your reasoning. But, my dear boy, you must remember that all this took place thousands of years ago— you must remember too that all records of the kind that would help us are lacking also that the places to be considered were desert so far as human habitation or population are considered in the vast desolation of such a place as complied with the necessary conditions there must have been such profusion of natural growth as would bar the progress of men formed as we are the lair of such a monster would not have been disturbed for hundreds or thousands of years moreover these creatures must have occupied places quite inaccessible to man a snake who could make himself comfortable in a quagmire a hundred feet deep would be protected on the outskirts by such stupendous morasses as now no longer exist or which if they exist anywhere at all can be on very few places on the earth's surface far be it from me to say that in more elemental times such things could not have been The condition belongs to the geologic age, the great birth and growth of the world, when natural forces ran riot, when the struggle for existence was so savage that no vitality which was not founded in a gigantic form could have even a possibility of survival. That such a time existed, we have evidence in geology, but there only. We can never exact proofs such as this age demands. We can only imagine or surmise such things or such conditions and such forces as overcame them end of chapter 5 chapter 6 of the Layer of the White worm by Bram stoker read for librivox.org by betsy bush chapter six, hawk and pigeon at breakfast time next morning sir nathaniel and mr salton were seated when adam came hurriedly into the room any news? asked his uncle mechanically. Four! for what? asked Sir Nathaniel. Snakes! said Adam, helping himself to a grilled kidney. Four snakes? I don't understand. Mongoose! said Adam, and then added explanatorily, I was out with a mongoose just after three. Four snakes in one morning! Why, I didn't know there were so many on the brow the local name for the western cliff. I hope that wasn't the consequence of our talk of last night. It was, sir, but not directly. But, God bless my soul, you didn't expect to get a snake like the Lambton worm, did you? Why, a mongoose to tackle a monster like that, if there were one, would have to be bigger than a haystack. These were ordinary snakes, about as big as a walking stick. "'Well, it's pleasant to be rid of them, big or little. "'That is a good mongoose, I am sure. "'He'll clear out all such vermin round here,' said Mr. Sultan. Adam went quietly on with his breakfast. Killing a few snakes in a morning was no new experience to him. He left the room the moment breakfast was finished, and went to the study that his uncle had arranged for him. Both Sir Nathaniel and Mr. Sultan took it that he wanted to be by himself, "'so as to avoid any questioning or talk of the visit "'that he was to make that afternoon. "'They saw nothing further of him "'till about half an hour before dinner-time. "'Then he came quietly into the smoking-room, "'where Mr. Sultan and Sir Nathaniel "'were sitting together, ready-dressed. "'I suppose there is no use waiting. "'We had better get it over at once,' remarked Adam. "'His uncle, thinking to make things easier for him, said, "'Get what over?' "'There was a sigh of shyness about him at this,' He stammered a little at first, but his voice became more even as he went on. "'My visit to Mercy Farm!' Mr. Salton waited eagerly. The old diplomatist simply smiled. "'I suppose you both know that I was much interested yesterday in the Watfords.' There was no denial or fending off the question. Both the old men smiled acquiescence. Adam went on. "'I meant you to see it, both of you.' you uncle because you are my uncle and the nearest of my own kin and moreover you couldn't have been more kind to me or made me more welcome if you had been my own father mr sultan said nothing he simply held out his hand and the other took it and held it for a few seconds and you sir because you have shown me something of the same affection which in my wildest dreams of home i had no right to expect he stopped for an instant much moved Sir Nathaniel answered softly, laying his hand on the youth's shoulder. "'You are right, my boy, quite right. That is the proper way to look at it. And I may tell you that we old men, who have no children of our own, feel our hearts growing warm when we hear words like those.' Then Adam hurried on, speaking with a rush, as if he wanted to come to the crucial point. Mr. Watford had not come in, but Lilla and Mimi were at home— and they made me feel very welcome. They have all a great regard for my uncle. I am glad of that, anyway, for I like them all—much. We were having tea when Mr. Coswell came to the door, attended by the negro. Lilla opened the door herself. The window of the living-room at the farm is a large one, and from within you cannot help seeing anyone come. Mr. Caswell said he had ventured to call, as he wished to make the acquaintance of all his tenants, in the less formal way. "'and more individually than had been possible to him on the previous day. "'The girls made him welcome. "'They are very sweet girls, those, sir. "'Someone will be very happy some day there, with either of them.' "'And that man may be you, Adam,' said Mr. Salton heartily. "'A sad look came over the young man's eyes, "'and the fire his uncle had seen there died out. "'Likewise the timber left his voice, making it sound lonely.' Such might crown my life, but that happiness, I fear, is not for me, or not without pain and loss and woe. "'Well, it's early days yet,' cried Sir Nathaniel heartily. The young man turned on him his eyes, which had now grown excessively sad. "'Yesterday, a few hours ago, that remark would have given me new hope, new courage. But since then I have learned too much.' THE OLD MAN, SKILLED IN THE HUMAN HEART, DID NOT ATTEMPT TO ARGUE IN SUCH A MANNER. "'TOO EARLY TO GIVE IN, MY BOY!' "'I am not of a giving-in kind,' replied the young man earnestly. "'But, after all, it is wise to realize a truth. And when a man, though he is young, feels as I do, as I have felt ever since yesterday when I first saw Mimi's eyes, his heart jumps. He does not need to learn things. He knows.' There was silence in the room, during which the twilight stole on imperceptibly. It was Adam who again broke the silence. "'Do you know, Uncle, if we have any second sight in our family?' "'No, not that I ever heard about. Why?' "'Because,' he answered slowly, "'I have a conviction which seems to answer all the conditions of second sight.' "'And then,' asked the old man, much perturbed, and then the usual inevitable. What in the Hebrides and other places, where the sight is a cult, a belief, is called the doom, the court from which there is no appeal. I have often heard of second sight. We have many Western Scots in Australia, but I have realized more of its true inwardness in an instant of this afternoon than I did in the whole of my life previously." A granite wall stretching up the very heavens, so high and so dark, that the eye of God himself cannot see beyond. Well, if the doom must come, it must. That is all. The voice of Sir Nathaniel broke in, smooth and sweet and grave. Can there not be a fight for it? There can, for most things. For most things, yes, but for the doom, no. What a man can do, I shall do.' there will be, must be, a fight. When and where and how, I know not, but a fight there will be. But after all, what is a man in such a case? Adam, there are three of us. Sultan looked at his old friend as he spoke, and that old friend's eyes blazed. Aye, three of us, he said, and his voice rang. There was again a pause, and Sir Nathaniel endeavoured to get back to less emotional and more neutral ground. Tell us more of the meeting. Remember, we are all pledged to this. It is a fight à l'outrance, and we can afford to throw away or forego no chance. We shall throw away or lose nothing that we can help. We fight to win, and the stake is a life. Perhaps more than one. We shall see. Then he went on in a conversational tone, "'such as he had used when he spoke of the coming to the farm of Edgar Caswell. "'When Mr. Caswell came in, the negro went a short distance away, and there remained. "'It gave me the idea that he expected to be called, and intended to remain in sight, or within hail. "'Then Mimi got another cup and made fresh tea, and we all went on together. "'Was there anything uncommon? Were you all quite friendly?' asked Sir Nathaniel quietly. Quite friendly. There was nothing that I could notice out of the common, except, he went on with a slight hardening of the voice, except that he kept his eyes fixed on Lilla in a way which was quite intolerable to a man who might hold her dear. Now, in what way did he look? asked Sir Nathaniel. There was nothing in itself offensive, but no one could help noticing it. You did, Miss Watford herself who was the victim, and Mr. Caswell, who was the offender, are out of range as witnesses. Was there anyone else who noticed? Mimi did. Her face flamed with anger as she saw the look. What kind of look was it? Over-ardent, or too admiring, or what? Was it the look of a lover, or one who fain would be? You understand? Yes, sir, I quite understand. Anything of that sort I should of course notice— It would be part of my preparation for keeping my self-control, to which I am pledged. If it were not amatory, was it threatening? Where was the offence? Adam smiled kindly at the old man. It was not amatory. Even if it was, such was to be expected, I should be the last man in the world to object, since I am myself an offender in that respect— Moreover, not only have I been taught to fight fair, but by nature I believe I am just. I would be as tolerant of and as liberal to a rival as I should expect him to be to me. No, the look I mean was nothing of that kind, and so long as it did not lack proper respect, I should not of my own part condescend to notice it. Did you ever study the eyes of a hound? At rest? No, when he is following his instincts, or better still— Adam went on, the eyes of a bird of prey, when he is following his instincts, not when he is swooping, but merely when he is watching his quarry. "'No,' said Sir Nathaniel, "'I don't know that I ever did.' "'Why, may I ask?' "'That was the look. Certainly not amatory, or anything of that kind. Yet it was, it struck me, more dangerous, if not so deadly as an actual threatening.' Again there was a silence which Nathaniel broke as he stood up. I think it would be well if we all thought over this by
0: ourselves.
1: Then we can renew the subject. End of chapter 6. This recording is in the public domain.
0: Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then...